is a podcast from the Refugee Studies Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Olaf, it's great to be here and uh, to have another chance to uh, try and uh, discuss some comparisons between the ancient Greek situation with exiles and refugees and the modern one. I'm going to talk mainly about ideology and ideas, ancient and modern, and I want to focus on a number of ideals which came to prominence in the world of the ancient Greek city-states, the world of all the city-states that you can see on the map but ones which continue now to shape our Western debates about forced migrants. First of all, the ideal of humanitarianism, what I'm going to call humanitarianism, and I'm defining that as the, the ideal of compassionate concern for fellow humans as humans, which is demanded especially of the strong in relations with the weak. Second, I want to talk about the ideal of the state of refuge or the city of refuge in the Greek case, so a much more political ideal. And third, I want to talk about the ideal of cosmopolitanism, the ideal of a type of citizenship and equality which cuts across borders of status and borders of territory. And I want to argue that those different ideals interacted with one another in a very complex way in ancient Greek debates about exiles and refugees. And they were often mainly rivals and opposites in ancient Greece rather than complementary ideals. And indeed, I think the history of ancient Greek debates about exiles and refugees reveals a lot about the complexities and the internal tensions and contradictions of the political ideologies of the ancient Greek city-states, especially uncertainties, ambiguities and disagreements concerning the status of the outsider and the scope of citizenship. I'd like to start with a specific example from the handout, and then I'm going to broaden out and consider the broader ancient Greek context and some of its complex modern legacy. There are lots of texts on the handout. Obviously, I'm not going to talk about all of them in detail. I hope this will be a useful record to take away. Some of these texts are quite difficult to get hold of in English, but some of them I'll zoom in on. For example, uh, text one is this uh, specific example I'd like to start with. And this is taken from a play by the first of the three great 5th century BC Athenian tragic playwrights, Aeschylus. Aeschylus, like the other Athenian tragedians, wrote tragic plays to be performed at public festivals of the Athenian democratic city. So these plays were performed in a deeply civic and political context, which makes them an interesting source of evidence for civic ideology. And in this particular case, in the later 460s BC, quite soon after the Persian Wars, Aeschylus wrote a tragedy which addressed directly the issue of aid for refugees, and this was his suppliant women, which took as its subject the Greek myths about the Danaids. These are the 50 daughters of Danaus in Greek mythology who fled from Egypt in order to avoid having to avoid being forced to marry their cousins, who were the sons of Aegyptus, the king of Egypt. And the Danaus and Danaids of Aeschylus play seek the help of the king of Argos, which is one of the major Greek cities of Greek city and myth, down here in the Peloponnese, not very far from Athens. 
And they seek the king's help by supplicating him. That's to say they perform the common Greek ritual which is called supplication, which is a formal ritual of entreating the help of a more powerful individual or group. And it's reported in the extract from the play that I've given as number one on the first page of the handout that the Argive king referred the matter to the Argive people, to the assembly, which voted conclusively to give refuge to the Danaids with formal legal protections against any form of persecution or mistreatment. So the Argive king has apparently given, in this case, only one, as you see towards the end of the passage, he gives only one explicit reason for granting refuge to these women, the Danaids, and he clearly considers this, considers this one reason to be compelling and sufficient in itself, and that reason is respect for the god Zeus, the king of the Greek gods, in his specific capacity as protector of suppliants, so people who engage in supplication, this ritual of seeking the help of a more powerful individual. And the archives in this case accept Zeus's humanitarian expectation that if you're in a position of strength, you should act unquestioningly on requests for aid by weaker fellow human beings in need of protection from exploitation or persecution. So at least on the face of it, Aeschylus here seems to be celebrating something which is quite strikingly close to the modern liberal human rights-based ideal of asylum, the good democratic state in this play by Aeschylus votes overwhelmingly to grant refuge with formal legal protections to individuals who approach it with a formal request for protection against persecution by the leaders of their home community, in this case in Egypt. And what's more, Aeschylus' democratic city does that out of respect for a universal requirement to give unconditional, impartial aid to fellow humans in need, and that's a principle which is protected by a god the king of the gods, Zeus. And the protection given to the Danaids in this case is even explicitly described in text 1 as asylum, as ilia in Greek, which is literally immunity from being robbed or plundered. And in fact, a similar ideal is also expressed in some other tragic plays from classical Athens, such as Euripides' play, The Children of Heracles. Euripides is the third of the great Athenian tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides. In his play, The Children of Heracles, mythical Athens, uh, in this case rather than Argos, accepts the supplication of the young children of the dead Heracles, the great hero, and also their elderly protector, and grants them refuge from their persecutors. This is number two on the handout, which I won't talk about in detail. But nonetheless, even if important aspects of the modern liberal practice and ideology of asylum and refuge are prefigured in some of these plays, we certainly shouldn't jump too quickly to a more general view that ancient Greek practices and ideas concerning aid to refugees prefigured modern liberal ones. In fact, I'm going to argue that Aeschylus' ideal is in many ways an outlier in the ancient Greek evidence for various interesting reasons which I want to talk about. Other ancient Greek practices and rhetoric about refuge and asylum were much further removed from modern liberal ideals. Some of the reasons for that were practical and pragmatic. In mythical contexts, such as the case of the Danaids in number one, it was easy to imagine an all-powerful persecutor, such as King Egyptus, the king of Egypt, whose power to uh, persecute his subjects stretched far beyond his own territorial borders... But the world of the ancient Greek city-states of the 
classical period that I'm talking about now after the Persian Wars was very different. Famous cities like Athens, Sparta and Argos represent only a handful of the total number of city-states in the classical period which runs from about 480 BC to 323 BC from the Persian Wars to the death of Alexander the Great. During that period, at any one time, there were around a 1,000 city-states around the Aegean and the wider Mediterranean. Some of the names are marked on this map. Uh, for example, on the west coast of modern Turkey, we have uh, Halicarnassus, Miletus, Priene, Ephesus. These are all uh, self-governing communities, sometimes incorporated into the Persian Empire in that case, but with their own civic institutions. And in the following centuries, after the conquests of Alexander the Great, at the end of the 4th century BC and the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, even more city-states were founded and flourished in the Near and Middle East, as well as in the older Greek world that's on the map. Occasionally, one state became overwhelmingly dominant, like Sparta after its victory in the famous 5th century Peloponnesian War that Thucydides writes about. And in that kind of context, it did become worthy of note in practice that other cities gave safe residence to opponents of the dominant power. But in general, power was so fragmented and dispersed, with many different city-states in competition with one another, that it was relatively straightforward, usually, for refugees to escape from their persecutors in whichever particular state they were living and find a new place of residence. Another practical reason why the mere granting of residence rights was not usually something to boast about in ancient Greece was the nature of Greek cities' approaches to immigration and to foreigners more generally. In most city-states, including Athens, there was a special category of resident foreigners, often called metics in the Greek world, and those were immigrants who had registered as foreign residents of their new city. And that status of being a metic carried very substantial financial and military burdens. And as a result of that, immigration was usually much less of a controversial issue than in a modern liberal democracy. In the absence of any strong ethical or political pressure to integrate resident foreigners within the exclusive privileged group of citizens of any city, cities didn't really need to worry about profiting to the full from immigrants' labour and their contributions to civic life. There weren't many downsides for the cities. And that setup meant that it was usually not the grant of mere residence rights to refugees, but more substantial grants of aid and privileges, which ancient Greek cities considered it worth advertising and celebrating in some cases. And this is evident, I think, from text number three on the handout on the second page. This is a text of a formal decision of the 4th century BC Athenian democracy to grant aid to some exiles from the region of Akarnania in west-central Greece around here. So these exiles had moved from the west of Greece, Akarnania, here to Athens. And this particular text is an example of a common practice of ancient Greek city-states, which in fact provides much of our evidence for them. And that's the inscription on stone for widespread consumption of important decisions and laws of the city. And there are several more examples of that on the handout. Some of them I'll talk about later. The recipients of the grant, in this case, text 3, the men from Akarnania, were political and military allies of the Athenians who had been fighting on the Athenian side in the wars of the mid-4th century BC, but now found themselves expelled from their home cities as a result of a change of regime. And the Athenians in this text, 3, 
granted these exiles substantial privileges, and those privileges included the right to buy houses at Athens and to participate in the Athenian courts and also to enjoy the support and protection of Athenian officials, so things that were usually privileges of Athenian citizens rather than foreigners. But this decree also grants uh, these exiles exemption from the metoikion, which is the standard tax on resident foreigners in Athens, So a large part of the point of this grant is precisely to raise the status of these refugee friends of Athens above the status of -of run-of-the-mill immigrants. So the point is that a true Greek city of refuge did much more for distinguished, deserving refugees than merely to grant them safe residence on its territory. But in addition to those practical considerations that I've been talking about, I think there are also important and interesting ideological and symbolic reasons why Aeschylus' quite liberal-sounding ideal of humanitarian asylum in text 1 wasn't standard in the world of the Greek cities. In ancient Greek culture, as in modern Greek culture, ideals of open, unconditional hospitality to strangers and humanity towards the weak and vulnerable were pervasive. Hospitality and guest friendship are already very prominent in the Homeric poems, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, for example. And so too is the practice of supplication, which we saw in the Aeschylus passage. So that's the ritual of entreating the help of a more powerful individual, or an individual in a stronger position. And what's more, asylum in the technical Greek sense was taken very seriously. That's to say that certain religious sites, temples and altars and so on were inviolable and anyone who took refuge there was protected from seizure by their enemies or by the local civic authorities. Their fate and the question of their possible punishment was now, because they'd taken asylum, a matter for the gods rather than for politics and for law. Seeking asylum at an altar or temple was possible within one's own state just as much as beyond it, and in fact we often hear of it precisely in the context of civil wars where some individual or faction sought refuge at an altar within the home state in order to avoid suffering violence. But nonetheless, although those ethical and religious ideals were absolutely pervasive in Greek culture, I want to argue that the Greek city-states found it quite difficult to integrate them into their political and civic ideologies, debates, and institutions, and that's for various important reasons that I'm going to try and uh, explain. In ancient Greece, strict politics was usually the province of quite hard-headed calculation of interests, including collective civic interests, the common good of the city. It was also the province of particular relationships and attachments, especially patriotic ones. And it was the province of strict justice and very demanding civic virtue, strong expectations of total commitment to one city. And those considerations were often difficult to square with ethical and religious requirements of universal humane concern. We can even see the Athenian theatre where Aeschylus and Euripides' plays were performed, as a place of collective questioning and reflection, where conflicts between politics and ethics, between justice and humanitarianism, could be explored. For example, you might have read that lots of modern thinkers and philosophers have often seen Sophocles' play Antigone as an exploration of this kind of conflict between religious and ethical norms of human and humane sympathy on the one hand and the much harsher demands of political and legal justice on the other. And you might say that in The Suppliant Women and The Children of Heracles, the two plays from which I've quoted on the first page of the handout, 
we see Aeschylus and Euripides gesturing towards a possible reconciliation of those two approaches, usually in conflict. The playwrights are suggesting that, in fact, it might be possible, or it was possible in the mythical past, to come up with a very humane mode of democratic politics. But I wanted to try and explore the nature, the precise nature of the conflict between Greek politics and ethics in a bit more detail. Now, ideals of, universe, of universalism and humanitarianism clashed, on the one hand, with the inequalities and self-interest of Greek cities. The Greek city-states relied on quite rigid and complex status distinctions between slaves and free people, between citizens and metics, foreigners, and also distinctions within the citizen body. And what's more, most of those statuses were deeply conditional, Citizen status and sometimes even free status could be lost if you transgressed against certain civic laws and norms. And conditionality could also be positive. Certain citizens and foreigners receive particular honour and privileges in recognition of outstanding civic virtue and contributions. And as a result, the ideal of unconditional humane benevolence could easily have undermined the whole system. For example, in text 3, the inscription that I was talking about, the Athenian decree about the aid to the Akarnanian refugees, the Athenians advertised their special aid to particular refugees who had ended up in exile partly as a result of their loyalty to Athens. So the intention in this case was surely partly to provide an incentive to Athenian allies to exert themselves on Athens' behalf an aid which was presented as unconditional and humane couldn't possibly have had that precise incentivizing effect. On the other hand, if I can uh, stick up for the polis a bit, having said how unequal and uh, self-interested it was, universalism and humanitarianism were also quite hard to reconcile with some a bit more attractive aspects of Greek city-states culture, especially many Greek city-states' strong concern with substantial standards of justice, equality, virtue and freedom. Stress on unconditional humane benevolence to refugees would not obviously have advanced those ideals and it might even have curtailed them by devaluing commitment to one's own particular community and devaluing the particular intense types of justice, equality and solidarity which become possible within a close-knit polis community of the kind that was common in classical Greece. By contrast, linking aid to refugees to the defence and promotion of certain values enabled the Athenians to use the practices and rhetoric of a city of refuge to advance their specific and demanding political and cultural ideals. And this comes across clearly, I think, in the extracts I've given as four and five on the handout on pages two and three. These are extracts from speeches of two of the great orators of the 4th century BC Athenian democracy, Lysias and Isocrates, and they're taken from speeches in which those orators celebrate Athens' virtues as a shining political and ethical model. And when these two orators present Athens as a city of refuge, their emphasis falls squarely on justice and protection of the victims of injustice. The ideal of unconditional humane aid to suppliants, what we saw in the two tragedies, drops out entirely from the picture. These orators' rhetoric is, nonetheless, I think, partly comparable to some modern liberal rhetoric and ideology about aid to refugees at the same time as being significantly different from it. And I want to try and explain this point with the help of the modern distinction between impartial and partial approaches to 
uh, refugee questions the way that uh, Matthew Gibney has summed it up. So the way I'm understanding this is that, uh, on the one hand, uh, modern liberal arguments for aid to refugees tend to emphasize impartiality. So a liberal democratic state has a duty to give equal impartial consideration to the needs of all humans or to all who reach its territory, regardless of their particular origins or status or identity or beliefs or view of the good life or the good society. And those arguments from impartiality are directed against defenders of partiality, so against those who argue that states should concentrate on the needs of their own citizens and the promotion of the state's own distinctive culture and values. And I think the Athenian speeches that I've quoted in 4 and 5 on the handout hover in quite interesting ways between partiality and impartiality in those senses. There is a clear note of concern to enforce standards of justice which are universal and certainly transcend Athenian society and its borders. In text number four, Lysias praises the mythical Athenians' aid to the refugee children of Heracles, so the same mythical topic that Euripides treated in one of his tragedies, the one that's um, cited under number two. And he gives this as an example of the Athenians' desire to help victims of injustice, the adikumenoi, The Athenians always side with the weaker against powerful oppressors, but justice is always the central consideration. And that language is picked up by Isocrates. Uh, This is in text 5a, which is taken from a speech called the Panegyricus. And there, Isocrates claims, I quote this, he says, At all times, without ceasing, they, so the Athenians, have offered their city as a common refuge and as a champion of those Greeks who suffer injustice. So far, that rhetoric sounds quite close to liberal impartiality, or at least to impartiality. But other aspects of these speeches show that these Athenian orators certainly did not aspire to be neutral between views of the good life and the good society, or impartial in their treatments of the advocates of those different values. Isocrates makes very clear in text 5a, towards the bottom of 5a, the bit that's in bold, that Athenian aid to the victims of injustice is not truly universal. The Athenians support Greeks, specifically Greeks, who suffer injustice. And what's more, Athenian aid to refugee victims of injustice was also restrictive and partial, even when it came to Greeks. And that's clearest, I think, in what I've given as 5b on the handout, which I'll summarise. Uh, this is an extract from another later speech of Isocrates in praise of Athens, which is called his Panathenaicus. And in this extract, 5b, Isocrates contrasts Athens with Sparta, whereas the Spartans drove out from their homes the people of the cities of Messenia and Plataea, Athens provided these victims of injustice with refuge. They settled the Messenians in the city of Naupactos, and they gave the Plataeans refuge and even citizenship, unusually, in Athens itself. So Isocrates makes quite clear here that he's working with a distinctly partial, very substantial, very rich vision of Greek history, Greek politics and Greek culture, which serves as the basis for his conception of justice and of benevolence. He celebrates the Plataeans, for example, as indispensable contributors to the Greek war effort against the Persians in the 5th century BC Persian Wars, which Isocrates presents as a successful struggle for Greek freedom. For Isocrates, the value of the Athenians' aid to the expelled Plataeans certainly doesn't lie in its impartial justice, but rather in its recognition and promotion of the particular virtues and contributions of a specific community, the Plataeans, who he even calls benefactors of Greece. That's the reason why the aid to them as refugees was so valuable, because this was a reward for benefactors of Greece. 
And in fact, in general, the classical Athenians tended to favour refugees and exiles who were transparent partisans, supporters of Athens, like the Acarnanians that we saw in the inscription in text 3, and also partisans of the Athenian brand of democracy and equality, there was no question of Athenian aid to the victims of injustice extending to Spartans, for example, Sparta's Athens, Athens' great enemy, or to other anti-democrats who might have suffered unjust treatment. The Athenian city of refuge in this ideology was not seeking to be an impartial melting pot, but rather seeking actively to shape the Greek world in the name of particular historical struggles for freedom and so on, and of particular substantial notions of freedom, but also justice and democracy. So the classical Athenians approached giving aid to particular refugees as part of a radical project to change the world in an egalitarian and democratic direction, even though that project was very closely bound up in practice with Athenian interests and even with Athenian imperialism, Athens was a very dominant player in the politics of the Greek city-states all around the Aegean Sea in the classical period. But to take another step in my main argument, there's also another dimension to the question of why Aeschylus' humanitarian ideal, or what I argued was a humanitarian ideal in text 1, There's another dimension to why that's not characteristic of mainstream Greek idealistic expressions of the city of refuge ideal. And this dimension concerns questions of gender, age, patronage, and independence. Because I think it's worth noting that the beneficiaries of aid in the tragedies that I talked about are the Danaids, so women, in one play, and in the other play, Euripides' children of Heracles, the beneficiaries are young children, they're the orphan children of Heracles and their elderly escort. And I think that's not a coincidence. It was precisely those who were not adult male citizens who could be straightforwardly presented as deserving of humane compassion and support. In classical Athenian ideology, adult males were, by contrast, expected to be capable of much greater independence and self-defence it would have been demeaning or feminizing for adult males to accept any form of charity or anything which looked like charity, which placed them in a position of clear dependence on their hosts and deprived them of personal and political autonomy. Instead of that, the Athenians strove to equip male citizens in exile and male refugees with the means to continue to act as self-sufficient, autonomous political agents, even in exile. In text 3, for example, the Athenians explicitly grant privileges to the Acarnanian exiles only until they return home. So the Athenians presuppose in that text that the Acarnanians will be sufficiently organized and courageous to achieve a successful return to their home city, defeating their opponents at home. And in a similar way, the Athenians also encouraged or tolerated the tendency of exile groups in Athens to form themselves into cities in exile, a bit like modern governments in exile, with their own civic institutions and practices. For example, we know that the Plataean refugees at Athens, who are mentioned by Isocrates, held a monthly meeting in the Athenian cheese market, uh, which is in some ways comparable to the practice of a settled city of always holding a regular assembly on a certain day of the month. So, in these cases, the Athenians collaborated with the displaced in creating at least an appearance of autonomy for the exiles. Uh, And even though the power relations in play were very complex, 
uh, aid to exiles was itself to some extent an arm of Athenian imperialism, nonetheless the Athenians and the exiles collaborated in trying to conceal or mitigate that uh, inequality. So to summarize my argument so far, uh, classical Greek or classical Athenian discourse about refugee aid was marked by the competing clashing ideals of impartial humanitarianism on the one hand and the just city of refuge on the other. But what about the third ideal that I mentioned at the start, cosmopolitanism? Well, I'd argue that that too was in tension with the other two in classical Athens. They formed a sort of interconnected uh, triad of ideals in tension with each other. And the reason for saying that is that the original advocates of cosmopolitanism, who were also living in the city-state of Athens, were precisely those exiles and refugees in Athens who fell through the cracks of official Athenian aid to refugees. These were unconventional adult male exiles who didn't have any special qualification for Athenian recognition or aid. And I'm thinking of the uh, early members of the Cynic and Stoic philosophical schools in Athens, especially two Cynic philosophers called Diogenes of Sinope and Crates of Thebes, who are known to have been exiles from their home cities living in Athens. And those Cynic philosophers in their thought took aim squarely at the prevailing particularism of the Greek civic world, the obsession with the individual small-scale city, with your home city as the main horizon of your social and ethical and political world. They took aim at that particularism, including the Athenians' tendency that I just talked about to encourage exiles and refugees to form themselves into separate expatriate communities, each dedicated to returning a separate return to its home city. And they took aim at those ways of thinking by arguing that they themselves were exiles only by convention, not by nature. In fact, they could never be exiled from their true city, which is the natural cosmopolis, hence cosmopolitanism, of all virtuous men who live according to nature, and I've given uh, a six on the handout if you want to look at it later, uh, an ancient report of the cosmopolitan thinking of these early cynic philosophers. So cosmopolitanism in classical Greece was initially a very radical attack on the very notion of particular states and borders, and indeed on the notion that, that there ever truly is a relationship between a refugee and a host, rather than between two citizens of the world. So that was my argument about the classical Greek world, that these three approaches to the question of refugee aid were clearly separate and in competition with each other. But in the last section of the talk, I'm going to talk a bit about the Hellenistic world, so the world, the Greek world after the conquest of Alexander the Great from the end of the 4th century BC to the 1st uh, first, first century BC when Roman power was very firmly established. And I think in this period, the three ideals that I was talking about, humanitarianism, the city of refuge, and cosmopolitanism, were fused together in Greek ideologies about refugee aid in very interesting ways. Now, this Hellenistic period is the age of the great kingdoms, of the Ptolemies in Egypt, for example, or the Seleucids in in, uh, Syria and so on, and also other kingdoms. But nonetheless, Greek cities continued to exist and indeed to flourish and prosper within those kingdoms and in the gaps between them. Traditional civic values and ideologies also continued to flourish, but at the same time, certain new approaches to citizenship, virtue, and benevolence also came to prominence in the Hellenistic cities in ways which were closely bound up with the issue of exiles and refugees. 
Alexander's wide-ranging conquests throughout the Near and Middle East vastly increased the extent and variety of the Greek world, as well as making its general political structure more hierarchical. And this created a social and political environment which was very propitious for an increase in prominence for what I was calling humanitarian thinking, especially ideals of humanity. That's philanthropia in Greek, from which we get the word philanthropy. And that had repercussions, in turn, for the Greek city's approaches to the question of refugee aid. And that's evident, I think, in the texts I've given and translated as 7 to 10 on the handout, on pages 4 and 5, which are all extracts from inscribed texts of the Hellenistic cities. These are all examples of so-called honorary decrees of Greek cities, formal decrees which cities voted on in order to honour benefactors and show gratitude to them. I can try and show a photograph of one of these... This is an example from one of the cities of Asia Minor. Uh, It's inscribed on a classical column from a typical ancient Greek temple. Uh, It starts by saying, the demos, so the people of the city of Colophon, in this case, honoured someone called Menippos, who's in the second line. So the uh, ancient Greek city, and in particular the um, Hellenistic city, is completely uh, suffused with these kind of texts, even if you visit the archaeological sites. Now, uh, the the remains are full of texts such as that. Uh, This was a culture of honouring and so on. So one of the main sources of evidence we have for the civic ideology of cities in this period is precisely this kind of inscribed text. These are the kind of things which have been um, published and which I've uh, translated on pages 4 and 5, and I'll touch on a few details of these texts. Uh, Text 7 provides, I think, interesting evidence of a transition in some Greeks' approaches to exiles and refugees in the Hellenistic period. It dates to the early 2nd century BC, and it records the honours passed by the city of Elatea in central Greece in honour of the citizens of Stymphalos, which is in the Peloponnese, towards Sparta. The Elataeans in this text praise the Stymphalians, the citizens of Stymphalos, for having granted them refuge when they were driven out of their home city by war and having ensured their welfare by giving them access to food and to religious life. And in an interesting sign of the transition to a new approach, if this text has been reconstructed correctly, the Elataeans praise the Stymphalians for, I quote, assiduousness in humane behaviour appropriate to our kinship. So the mythical kinship between these two cities. So here, both universal humanity and particular relations of kinship are raised as grounds for the aid to the refugees. Old and new ideals are sitting here side by side. And what's particularly interesting is that this decree is one of the earliest ones to emphasize the grant of quite charitable help, not only to women and children, but also to adult male citizens. No distinction is being made anymore. And what's more in contrast with the classical Athenian model, in this case the Stymphalians didn't help the Elataeans to continue to behave like an autonomous political group. They didn't, like the Athenians, uh, encourage them to behave like a government in exile, a city in exile. On the contrary, and you see this in bold at the bottom of text 7, the uh, Stymphalians in this case performed embassies on behalf of the refugees who stayed behind in their host city of Stymphalos, so there's a bit of a change in approach there. Even male exiles and refugees are here cast as grateful, even quite passive recipients of aid from more powerful and charitable, humane hosts. So here there comes into view maybe something which is a bit more like the modern idea of the refugee, so a 
mainly dependent political status, which is certainly open to adult male citizens as well as women, children, and the elderly. And there's similar rhetoric in text 8. This is the uh, this is a text I want to focus on. It's very rich in ideas, and uh, I hope we can discuss it. This comes from an honorary decree for a particularly wealthy and prominent citizen of the Greek city of Colophon in Asia Minor. So it's the same city that I've taken this photograph for, from. This photograph is an inscription that was passed for a contemporary of Polymaios, the man who's featured in text 8, called Menippos. Uh, so Polymaios had a very similar uh, inscription in his honour, which went on for, which began on a column like that, but carried on on, on a uh, statue base for many more lines and columns. But I've taken the extract which relates to refugees and given it to you as text 8 on handout. And in this case, this is a later 2nd century BC text, so almost a century on from number 7. This is at a point where the Roman conquest of the Greek world is very advanced. And here, Polymaios is praised for having given financial aid, both, don- both donations and loans, to refugees who fled to his home city, presumably fleeing from war and unrest. And this is very forcefully presented in text 8 as evidence for the benefactor's humanity or his philanthropia, so his humane concern for his fellow humans. It was not only refugees from war who were deemed worthy of humane, charitable treatment in some Hellenistic cities. Even political exiles can be treated in that way, and this is why I've included text 9 on the handout, which I won't talk about in detail. That's an example of this kind of humane approach to uh, even a political faction in exile. In this case, it's a woman benefactor, which is also interesting, who's being praised in the first century AD for having been sympathetic and compassionate and for having been very generous in receiving uh, political exiles, a political faction in exile. I also included text 9 because this comes from 1st century AD Corinth. So this is the Corinth of St. Paul and his letters, which is itself significant because this language of humane philanthropy that I've been talking about in the Hellenistic Greek city certainly fed quite directly, along with lots of other sources, into early Christian ethics and Christian ideas of universalistic charity. So it might appear from this that I'm endorsing a very traditional picture of the development of Hellenistic Greek ethics and politics towards Christian approaches. This is something which is already a cliche in 19th century German philosophy, for example. According to this picture, classical Greek concern, the kind of thing I was talking about earlier, with the small-scale city, with strict justice, equality and democracy, gave way to a Hellenistic focus on the whole world community of Greeks or humans, and the duties of charitable benevolence which bind them together. And according to a common version of that view, the new emphasis on humane concern, including humane concern for exiles and refugees, is a sign of depoliticisation, which robbed the weak, including refugees, of any political agency. And indeed, according to this view, it's a sign of the triumph of a Greek elite, an elite in the Greek cities, which could dispense at this point with democratic scrutiny or with considerations of justice and equality, and instead use the language and gestures of philanthropy to preempt or suppress dissent. It's true that I am partly subscribing to that old view, but I also want to suggest that the situation was a bit more complex if we look at text 8 in detail. If you look again at text 8, you'll see that, at least at the level of ideology, it wasn't a question of humanitarian ethics driving out questions of citizenship, justice, and equality. 
On the contrary, the citizens of Colophone there attempted something more subtle. They sought to reconcile within a single ideology politics and ethics, justice and humanitarianism. Polemire's behaviour towards refugees is explicitly said to be both humane and civic, and indeed his humanity is consistent with the whole ethos of the polis, according to text 8. So paradoxically, this decree seems to be implying it's only within a small-scale polis, city-state, that one can learn to be a truly humane cosmopolitanism, a truly humane cosmopolitan, and to act as one. And it's explicitly claimed that Polymer's behavior reveals his concern with a universal type of equality. The language of equality is used. It's said that Polymer wants to behave in a way which is equal towards all, not only his fellow citizens, but also his fellow residents of his city who aren't citizens. And it's true that Christianity and Christian ethics might well have subsequently transposed that general kind of humanitarian universalist approach mainly into the sphere of the divine and the afterlife and religious practice, limiting its application to political practice and to the here and now. But there are some hints in text 8, I think, of an attempt in a Hellenistic city, Colophon, to devise a humanitarian ideal which doesn't replace, but rather coheres with robust standards of citizenship and equality and with robust political institutions, including institutions with redistributive functions, because in this case, the policy of Colophon has put out an appeal to its citizens to contribute money and resources to helping out the refugees. So the civic institutions are very much involved. So I think we see in these select traces that I've put as uh, text 7 to 10 on the handout, in these select traces of Hellenistic civic rhetoric, something which is partly familiar from modern post-1945 liberal approaches to refugee aid, though obviously there are still very significant differences. The main point of contact is that we see in this handful of Greek of Hellenistic texts an attempt to fuse together the conflicting triad of classical Greek approaches to refugee aid by fusing humanitarianism and cosmopolitanism with the language and institutions of political justice and law, which are still centred on an individual state or city-state, and that's something we might compare with modern liberal attempts to synthesise those ideals into unified new ideals of human equality, human rights, and ethical cosmopolitanism, which are also still enforced by individual states for the most part. I think it's an interesting question how we should respond to that possibility Is it a coincidence or is it troubling that this kind of attempted synthesis first emerged in ancient Greece in the highly unequal and hierarchical world of the Hellenistic cities coming under the domination of Rome? Does this kind of ideology emerge only only when elites are sufficiently entrenched not to fear erosion of their property or their privileges, which makes it quite safe for them to start talking about universal equality and to politicise or appear to politicise humanitarianism? Or was this, in fact, a moral development which modern liberal internationalists can regard as a highly attractive one and one we should investigate further? I think even if we take that second, more positive option, we still have to weigh up what was lost in the Greek case by opting for this sort of politicised civic humanitarianism. And this is, relevant. this is relevant, I think, to debates between modern critics and advocates of human rights. I put the Duzinas book in the bibliography because he draws a lot on the Greek uh, background, the Greek legacy, but obviously there's a lot more uh, bibliography on that question. But the, question, the questions which, arises, which, which arise, I think, are, firstly, to what extent did the new Hellenistic language about civic humanitarianism deprive 
the displaced and other marginal groups of agency and autonomy, because they were now recipients of charitable aid, and secondly, to what extent did it make necessary or itself reflect the abandonment of grand projects of social, political and cultural transformation of the kind which I associated earlier with classical Athens in favour of a much blander universalism, so a type of egalitarianism which is more extensive in scope, it includes more people, but it's very substantially diluted in content. So, in conclusion, my overall picture of the ancient Greek ideology concerning asylum and refuge is one of complexities and tensions and disagreements. The ideological triad of humanitarianism, the city of refuge, and cosmopolitanism were in tension in the classical city. And I think it's an important point that the classical city certainly knew about ideas of humanitarianism and universalism, but actively rejected or marginalized them in favor of other political ideals. So this is certainly a history of rival moral and political choices rather than a crudely developmental story in which Western moral consciousness expands and suddenly we become capable of humanitarian thinking. According to my argument, some Hellenistic Greeks then fused together contrasting classical ideals into something new again, this complex ideological synthesis that I was just talking about, which perhaps partly prefigures modern approaches to this question. And I hope that this picture is relevant to uh, modern refugee studies in various ways, which maybe we can talk about. For one thing, there's the comparative angle, which I've touched on a bit. Uh, there's also the question of the actual Greek legacy and to what extent the Greek texts and ideas have actually exerted an influence on modern debates. There's certainly an indirect uh, classical tradition which has influenced debates in modern Europe about these issues, which comes through partly through Christianity, also through classical education and the classical tradition. And one of the consequences of that, I think, is that uh, modern liberalism and even modern liberal internationalism certainly carry not far beneath their universalist surface some of the marks of the quite different approaches of classical Republican political thought, the kind of thing I've been talking about today. For example, traces of exclusive conditional citizenship and exclusive conditional aid to outsiders, which are both underpinned by very robust notions of particularist patriotic civic virtue. For example, the way that we carry on giving much greater attention and status to political refugees rather than economic refugees and migrants must, at some level, surely be something to do with the enduring power of the classical civic republican tradition, which is buried beneath the surface of modern liberalism. But there are also a few points, and I'll close with this. There are also a few points at which classical ideals have impinged more directly on modern debates about refugees, uh, again, I hope we can talk about this a bit more in the discussion, but I'm going to close with the example that's on the last page of the handout, texts 11 and 12. These are texts written by the 20th century classicist Gilbert Murray, who was professor of Greek in Glasgow and then in Oxford, but also very active in the British League of Nations Union from the 1920s onwards, and very influential in the campaigns to accommodate German refugee scholars in Britain in the 1930s and 1940s. And texts 11 and 12 on the handout are two samples of Murray's writing about refugees. The first one, 11, comes from his book of 1913 on Euripides, which is addressed to a wide reading public. And it talks, in fact, about Euripides' play The Children of Heracles, one of the plays I started with. Number two on the handout's got some extracts. 
And Murray concludes here that the Athenian aid to mythical refugees in that play reveals Euripides' ideal of Athens. And I quote him saying, Athens will be true to Hellas and all that Hellas stands for, for law, for the gods of mercy, for the belief in right rather than force. Also, as the king of Athens is careful to observe, for democracy and constitutional government, he is no despot ruling barbarians. So Murray there summarises the different ancient Greek ideals I've been talking about today, making them play into a wide 20th century readership. And Murray himself then applied that approach, precisely that approach, to the question of modern refugees. One of the examples I found uh, is text 12 on the handout. This is a letter by him to the Times in uh, July of 1940, calling controversially for better treatment of certain German refugees in Britain, And in this letter, he adopts very much the approach which he has attributed in text 11 to Euripides, to the ancient Greek playwright. He says, I'll quote again, There are now two dangerous cries. One is internal Germans, which is already taking the form internal foreigners. This is the reaction of the average ignorant and unthinking man who can see no difference between one German and another, or if it comes to that, between one foreigner and another. Oppressor and victim, fascist and anti-fascist, they are all the same to him. Surely our greatest asset in the eyes of the world is not merely that we are fighting for a righteous cause, but that we are a decent nation with a high standard of honour. I've included this example not only in order to flag up the role of at least one classicist in the development of modern liberal ideals concerning refugees and asylum, but also because this example illustrates, I think, the broader point that I just made in conclusion about the complexity of the classical inheritance and its role in the genealogy of modern liberal ideals in this area. Murray was one of the leading intellectuals of liberal internationalism in early and mid-20th century Britain, and yet his approach to refuge and asylum includes several classicizing elements which appear rather out of kilter with, uh, at least with post-1945, post-1948 liberalism. He talks about good and bad Germans or about good and bad foreigners. He even talks about recognizing friends and enemies. He talks about barbarians and the vagaries of the uneducated mob. And he stresses patriotism and the importance of being a decent nation with a high standard of honour. He could almost have said they're a decent polis with a high standard of honour. So classicising civic humanism, the kind of ideals of Murray, also with people like Hannah Arendt. Classical civic humanism has not always chimed closely with modern liberal humanism or humanitarianism, although the two are obviously very closely linked to each other. Classical anti-universalism of the kinds that I talked about today Uh, is still very prominent even in the 20th century birth throes of modern liberal thinking about human rights and cosmopolitanism. So the modern ideals of asylum and refugee aid have, as all of you know, a very complex and conflicting history, and I hope that this paper has shown that that includes a very complex and conflicting classical dimension. Thanks very much. about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.